From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. Drive south of Denver on I-25 until you're near the New Mexico border. West of the highway, there's a small picnic area. Just a concrete slab, a roof, some tables. Look around and there's nothing but prairie and a line of foothills. After a while, there is one thing you might notice, though. A steel door with a handle lies flat against the ground. What happened beneath this door, it helps explain decades of politics in southern Colorado and why the region mostly voted a certain way until just a couple of years ago. Reporter Nathaniel Miner visited this site recently. He takes the story from here. Carolyn Newman stands next to me as I lift the heavy door. She's the director of the local historical society. And originally, this would have been all dirt, no concrete. Wow, it's a staircase that leads down. Oh, that's got to be... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, 14, about 15 steps down. This is a pit where 11 children and two women hid during a bitter coal mine strike back in 1914. It was the largest pit in this area because it was the maternity pit. People were staying in these tents for up to 15 months during the strike, and women went into this bigger pit to give birth. More than 1,000 miners and their families lived on this site. Back then, coal mining was huge down here in Los Animas and Huerfano counties. But conditions were terrible and pay was low, so miners walked off the job. The company called in the National Guard. And then one day in December, violence erupted. On the day of the massacre, it was chaotic. There were people with rifles on both sides. But the National Guard had a machine gun. They opened fire on the strikers. Guardsmen burned the camp to the ground. No one knew those children and women were in that pit. And so they suffocated there. About two dozen people died in what came to be known as the Ludlow Massacre. The event marked a turning point in the fight for better wages and working conditions. And there's another reason Ludlow's important. The local politics changed. The miners turned, I would say, against the Republican Party and became more democratic. And for a long, long time, that's the way it was. Mining slowed down big time after World War II. But steel mills and manufacturing in southern Colorado continued to ensure that labor was a big player here. And where you have labor unions, you have Democrats. The Democratic Party ran the show for decades. If you won that party's primary, you pretty much won the election. But here's the thing. The Democrats' hold on the area is not what it used to be. Whenever people are discontented with their lives, and people are discontented in southern Colorado because of the lack of opportunity and jobs, then people tend to look at another political party. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. Many counties in southern Colorado voted for now President Trump. In some cases, it was the first time they'd flipped red in decades. 
Almost immediately, people cited Southern Colorado as a Western example of the Rust Belt effect. After years of steady support for Democrats, blue-collar workers found something attractive in Trump's populism. So this week on Purplish, we're going to look at the costs of political neglect. What happens when a place feels forgotten? And what might that mean for the midterms and beyond? Okay, so this episode is going to be something of a tour of southern Colorado. And we're going to start by leaving the Ludlow Massacre site and driving about an hour north on I-25. That's where you'll find Pueblo, Colorado, which is generally thought of as the capital of this region. Allison Sherry, CPR's justice reporter, recently visited the city as a part of CPR's election road trip series. Allison, set the scene for us. What kind of place is Pueblo? So the first thing you notice when you go down I-25 is that when you enter Pueblo, there are huge smokestacks and a railroad and some sort of dusty old historic buildings. These are all emblems of what the town used to be. It has this tradition of being a steel town, and and that lore carries in every conversation, even now. There are fewer steel jobs, but everybody I talked to brought up the steel mill, whether I asked them about it or not. And Pueblo was definitely contested real estate in 2016. How did the presidential candidates uh, appeal to voters in this part of Colorado? Well, they they both went there, which is one thing. They both made stops. Bill and I talk about Pueblo all the time. And Hillary Clinton gave a standard stump speech. We're supposed to bring people together. We're supposed to unify our country. We're supposed to solve our problems by working together. She talked about being the president for everyone. And they said, well, do you think they'll like you in Pueblo? And Trump was Trump. I said, I think so. They said, well, you have a lot of Hispanics slash Latinos in Pueblo. And I said, I think that's why they're going to like me, actually. That's why they're going to like me. But his message was much more tailored to the audience. And we are going to put the miners back to work. They have to be put back to work. He talked about bringing manufacturing jobs back, keeping money in America. He talked about keeping jobs in America. He talked about crime. It was clear that Trump's message was resonating with people in Pueblo. How'd things break down on election night? Clinton won Colorado by five points, but in Pueblo County, it was too close to call on election night. Democratic Party leaders are still reeling from the news that many in the party crossed over. Trump narrowly won the county by less than one percentage point. And this was a huge departure from 2012, when President Obama won the county by 14 points. This means clearly there were a lot of people who both voted for President Obama and now President Trump. When you went to Pueblo, did you meet anybody who had been a reliable Democratic voter and then voted for Trump in 2016? Yeah, I did. There's one guy who really stands out, actually. We went to an old steelworker bar called Eilers. We are actually the second liquor license after Prohibition, I believe, ended in 1933. Now we have the coldest beer on tap. And this is where I met Jay Yaconi. My mom drugged me down on 4th Street when I was six. He's 64 years old. He's now a contractor. He actually said he met John F. Kennedy in 1962 during this historic stop that JFK made in Colorado. He goes, how are you doing, young man? And that, to me, I didn't know the significance of it at that time. But now, yeah. And I was a Democrat probably most of my life. Um, And he voted for Obama twice. Obama was the coolest 
president we've ever had. What did he say appealed to him about Trump? Well, he said he doesn't really like Trump as a person. Trump is not presidential. He's mean. It's like they said on TV, he runs it like a mob boss. But that the U.S. was doing too much abroad, too much money was going out, and really that there just needed to be a refocus on problems at home. He said he wanted to keep the money in the United States again, you know. You know, giving Pakistan $10 billion a year. I, I feel we were, we were hungry, too. We, need, we needed to keep that money. And how does Econi feel about that vote today? I think he still feels good about it. I mean, he actually was a little sheepish, saying, you know, he doesn't love the president. But he likes where Pueblo is going, and he likes where the United States is going. It seems like Pueblo's building 100 new houses a month out in Pueblo West. Yeah, and I, I work in that business right now, so for, for us, it's really good. As a contractor, he's been getting work. He's not sure if that's totally because of Trump, but he doesn't think that Trump has hurt the economy. Okay, so among the people you talk to, is this guy, Jay Yacone, representative of Democrats and Democratic voters who ended up voting for Trump in 2016, uh, or is he more of an outlier? Well, I would not say that one voter speaks on behalf of everybody else or other voters. But I do think, after talking to a lot of people there, that Trump's populist message, sort of simple, crystal, I will bring jobs back to America, I will bring manufacturing back to America, that really resonated, you know. And he talked about protective trade policies, he talked about getting rid of Chinese steel dumping. All that sounds really good to people, you know, who haven't seen the economic prosperity that Denver has in the last eight to ten years. And I think that's still the case. You know, people may not like Trump personally. They don't like his tweeting and all that. But they still feel like some of his policies are personally benefiting them. And this is a story we're, we're somewhat familiar with, right? Not necessarily always from Pueblo, but from places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio. Yeah. These these Rust Belt states where, where Trump won and a lot of people swung from Obama to Trump. I mean, is that right? Is that the same sort of story that you noticed? Yeah. Donald Trump won the 2016 election really. If, if you really want to look at the whole national map by about 77,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Much of what of how he won over the people in those states were attributed to the core message towards the working class. I do want to push back a little bit here because the storyline has become a common way to explain Trump's election in 2016, that he won over working class white voters because they felt left behind by the economy. But studies since the election have shown that it was more cultural anxiety than economic anxiety that drove white voters to vote for Trump. I mean, when you were down in Pueblo, did people say that this was about economic issues, things like trade and jobs, or, or was it about things like immigration or, or feeling like a stranger in your own country? Well, I mean, I guess I know that narrative, but I think we should first point out that Pueblo is a majority Latino town, and I never really got a sense from talking to people – um, people in both parties that, you know, the reason why Trump won and not Hillary Clinton was because of something to do with race. But I think your broader point about the cultural divide is is sort of true that in smaller towns and rural areas, 
that there's just not this feeling of, you know, moving forward. A lot of Pueblo doesn't have sort of the intellectual industry that Denver does or Boulder does. They don't have the defense industry that Colorado Springs does. So they're small business owners. They they work in the service industry. They work in manufacturing. And they live more hand-to-mouth. They live more subject to the whims of the economy. And I think much of what had made those communities thrive for generations has been sort of broken up or, or changed or moved away. And to the extent that Democrats weren't speaking to those anxieties, that's a cultural piece. I think that's true. Okay, so if Democrats in Pueblo shared these sorts of more rural perspectives on politics, I mean, what does that really mean? What issues do they say make them different from Democrats in other parts of the country or even other parts of Colorado? Well, they're a little bit more socially conservative. There are a lot of Catholics. There's a lot of pro-life Democrats down there. And, you know, we talked to the clerk and recorder, Bo Ortiz. He's a staunch Democrat. He has photos. He even has a painting of Obama over his desk. (laughs) We're very different Democrats than Denver and Boulder. You know, as you know, we love our guns. We're all hunters. And, you know, I'm a hunter. My son's a hunter. You know, I I remember riding through the east side with the 12-gauge on my bike so I could go kill uh, doves. After the Aurora Theater shooting, when the Democratic state legislature passed a new gun law, Puebloans actually recalled one of their elected officials over that vote. I would say Pueblo Democrats know they're different, and they know they don't feel represented, and they're willing to go against their own party if they feel like someone else is better. And does that feeling of of being politically neglected bleed over into local politics? Like, are Democrats struggling on a local level or is it more at a state and national level? Democrats still far outnumber Republicans in voter registration. And, you know, they still tend to elect Democratic office holders. In fact, a lot of times there's not even a Republican who decides to run in some of these local offices. So I think there may be a perception that state and national politicians are more focused on urban corridors. And that was something that local Republicans recognize as a big political opportunity. You know, when I was in Pueblo, I went to the state fair. Lucy Pets surfing and stunt dog shows presented by Pueblo Toyota and Swifty Swine racing And that's a big deal in Pueblo. It's every year. Everybody talks about it. Everybody goes. From Denver, people go down. I ran into the GOP county chair, Marla Reichert. And, you know, what's interesting about her is two years ago, she was not the GOP county chair, but she's still widely credited for flipping the county from blue to red. And she was in a great mood when I talked to her. She was handing out donuts, sitting underneath this big poster board that talked about all of Trump's accomplishments getting out of the Paris Climate Accord and the tax cuts package. Um, I think people voted in the last election for their family and their own individual economic well-being. You know, our, our still mill is expanding and growing. People are getting jobs. People are getting promotions. They're better off financially. You know, I think that turned the tide here. People were tired of being unemployed and of being broke. The point is, I think people in Pueblo have spent a long time feeling ignored, you know, when it comes to politics and the economy. And Trump saw that. That's what local Republicans saw. Trump saw it. And by listening to these voters, speaking to their values, speaking to their anxieties, they've been able to break through that Democratic firewall. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get out of Pueblo and into some really small towns. Because as it turns out, feeling ignored and neglected is relative. I don't know if 
you caught this, but earlier in the episode, Sam said that Allison and Nathaniel were in southern Colorado as part of our election road trip project. Well, I'm Megan Verlee, the editor of that effort, and I'm here to tell you all about it. See, we sent a lot of people from the newsroom off on the highways in recent weeks to hear what Coloradans are thinking about ahead of this fall's election. My husband and I pay $3,300 a month for our health insurance, and we're both healthy people. I think that we don't have the infrastructure, the resources to handle the massive amounts of people that are moving here. This is usually just more of a vibrant green, 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 because we usually have water running out there everywhere. You'll see water. We visited small towns and sprawling suburbs, drove the mountains and the plains, the front range and the western slope. and events are happening today. You can see what we saw and read and hear the stories we learned right now at roadtrip.cpr.org. See parts of the state in ways you haven't before and learn about your neighbors, your fellow Coloradans, all at roadtrip.cpr.org. And if you appreciate projects like this, and of course, like Purplish, too, please support our work. Become a member of Colorado Public Radio by going to cpr.org. You're back with Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. And we're going to pivot back now to Nathaniel Miner. Remember, he started the episode by telling us about the Ludlow Massacre and how that cemented this tradition of union politics in southern Colorado and this decades-long support for Democrats. Nathaniel, today the coal mines are, are long gone from the more rural parts of southern Colorado. What defines this region now? Well, I think what sets it apart, in some ways at least, is what it doesn't have. We're not Denver. We're not the six-county metro area. We're not Boulder. We're not Larimer County. We're struggling. We're not going to get the BLM office on the western slope. We're kind of the forgotten part of the state. So that's Lola Spradley, and you can really hear in her voice um, how she feels about this corner of the state. She was talking about how a place like Grand Junction, which has had its own economic troubles, is now a contender to host the Bureau of Land Management. It's a huge federal agency and would be a pretty big get for the Western Slope. Right. So anyway, Spradley is retired now in La Vida, about 15, 20 miles off of I-25. And uh, she was the Republican Speaker of the House back at the turn of the last century. So like 2000. Yes, exactly. 2000-ish, yeah. Uh, and one thing Werfano County does have a lot of is retirees, people like Lola Spradley. They will leave uh, the Front Range, they'll leave Texas, California, um, and come to Werfano County because it's pretty cheap. You can buy some land up in the mountains, beautiful view, uh, and spend a lot less than you would in a place like Vail. But, you know, scores of retirees is not really an economic engine. Uh, so what you see is a lot of young people leaving the area just because they can't find work. And earlier in this episode, you told us how Democrats used to dominate this part of Colorado back when it was more of a union stronghold and, and was based on these industries like coal mining. What are its politics like today? Kind of similar to Pueblo in some ways. But if the people in Pueblo feel like there's a difference between Democrats there and Democrats in Denver, I think it's a little more pronounced in Werfano County. Why do you say that? I talked about these issues with Dale Lyons, and she's the local Dam Party chair. Because it used to be the Democrats knew everybody in town. We sat down in her tiny little office in Walsenburg, the biggest town in Werfano County. Do you think the state party and the National Democratic Party are are choosing candidates that really resonate with a place like Werfano County? 
I guess I would choose not to answer that. Lyon says she's talking with the state party about all this. It's sensitive, but she did tell me this. I just think that, in general, we have to be mindful that living rurally is not an obsolete notion. And I think a lot of the people up north might believe that. And this is something I heard from more people than just Dale Lyons. People here just feel like candidates from the Denver area don't really get what's going on down there. So so wait, are, are voters there feeling neglected enough that they've, they've turned to the Republican Party for good? Like, is this part of the state on its way to being red? Or are voters just waiting for the right Democrat? So at the local level, it's a, it's a different story. Dale Lyons, the party chair, says if you look at Democratic candidates who know their neighbors, who grew up in the area, they're doing fine. In 14, we had six Democratic candidates running and all of them won their election, which was kind of not a great year for Democrats nationwide. So what you're seeing more of then is voters with split ballots, Democrats on the lower end and then maybe a Republican at the top. And that's not to say there aren't local Republicans, like two of the three county commissioners in Werfano are Republicans. But I talked to one who says at the local level, party labels aren't really that important. What matters is how good you are at your job. And your job is to understand local issues and then try to fix them. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, so it sounds like they feel like national politicians or state-level politicians just don't share that perspective. They aren't as focused on the local issues that they're dealing with every day. Yeah, that's what I heard. I mean, this is Werfano County. And people told me over and over again, in Spanish, Werfano means orphan. So they're feeling like orphaned by state politicians. Right. Nathaniel, what about this year? Do people still feel orphaned and forgotten in 2018? There's there's a governor's race going on. There's lots of candidates running for statewide office. Do they still feel forgotten? I mean, the people that I spoke to, and these were maybe 15 or 20 folks from Werfano County all the way up to the San Luis Valley, Alamosa area, um, they kind of didn't even realize uh, that there was a governor's race going on. Um, and this was a month ago, uh, right before Labor Day. But, you know, candidates, uh, both Jared Polis and Walker Stapleton, you know, have, have campaigned down there. But um, what people told me is they're not, you know, they're not speaking to them about issues that really matter to their lives. Yeah. And I want to bring back Allison Cherry because you were down in Pueblo around the same time. What were people saying about the governor's race down there? Did they feel appreciated or and listened to uh, in this current political contest? I mean, no, I think I actually really agree with what Nathaniel just said, because I, I sort of did. The one thing that stuck out at me almost more than anything was that people universally didn't have strong thoughts about the governor's race. And what is remarkable about that is I was talking to partisans. I was talking to people who otherwise really engaged in politics on a day-to-day basis. And I just didn't get a sense that there was a ton of excitement about either politician. But even do you remember Bo Ortiz, the Democratic official with the mm-hmm. Obama painting in his office? This is what he said. Uh, I think it's it's up for grabs. I really do. And Mr. Polis and Mr. Stapleton need to spend some time down here. They better pay attention to us. 
So have Polis and Stapleton been campaigning in Southern Colorado? Yeah, they have. I mean, uh, Polis has attended or held 40 events, according to his spokesperson. And Stapleton has been down there, quote unquote, dozens of times, but they counted his years as Colorado treasurer. But also I should note that the the day I called about this, the hour I called about this, Stapleton was delivering a speech in Pueblo and then moving on to the San Luis Valley. So according to the campaigns, the candidates are there. But so far, it doesn't sound like their message has connected with the voters in southern Colorado in a way where they feel like they're listened to. Okay, but let's look at this from a campaign's perspective, because I did some math and 80 percent of active voters in Colorado live along the northern front range. So in places like Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, the the suburbs around all those places. Why should people in these places be concerned that voters in more rural parts of Colorado, like southern Colorado, don't feel listened to, don't feel like their priorities are being represented? Sam, why can't you just let other parts of the state be happy too? That's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make is that... That in a democracy, you know, you want the majority of people to have a say. And if the majority of people happen to be urban voters, then I'm not sure we should be protecting the voices of rural voters at the cost of urban and suburban voters. The first thing that comes to mind is, like, it's okay to want good things for other people. My second argument would be, uh, you know, people move to Denver and to Fort Collins uh, and Boulder, and they go other places, right? Like Colorado is a beautiful state and we, and you don't live in a city just to stay in the city. You live here because of its proximity to everything else, to Vail, to Crested Butte and to Southern Colorado. Like there's some really cool things down there. So I don't know, Sam, do you live in the same neighborhood as Walker Stapleton or Jared Polis? No, I'm not going to say where I live for the purpose of this podcast, <laughs> but I, I don't think I live near either one of them. Okay. So I think when Someone who, you know, lives in Boulder or lives in some Denver suburb cares about Pueblo or cares about Grand Junction um, or cares about northern Colorado. It sends a message to the rest of the state that they care about them, too. And the other thing I would say is I'm a justice reporter and I cover a lot of rural jails and I've been in a lot of rural jails. And I will say that the opioid crisis in the San Luis Valley and the overcrowding, you know, if one part of the state is economically suffering, we all pay for that. So not to get all freshman philosophy on you here. That's okay. That's allowed for this show. Okay, great. So so earnest. But uh, let's think about utilitarianism, right? And that, this is the idea in philosophy that a moral decision is one that uh, does the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Right. Right. So if you're governor, that means your decisions would be for the, you know, the people along the front range where most people live. There's another part of utilitarianism, which is, these decisions are, are, are moral and good if they, um, if they last through the long run. I would argue that over the long term, Colorado would be better off if, if its candidates for governor really did pay attention to everyone and take everyone's concerns into account. Nathaniel, Allison, thanks uh, for coming in. It was awesome, Sam. Yeah, you're welcome. This week, we've examined the reasons for and the consequences of political neglect. It's a feeling that's really about representation. Like, do elected officials actually understand my interests and my community? Or are they more concerned about somebody else? Which leads to another issue. 
what's the best way to determine the boundaries of a political community anyway? The process of drawing political maps has been corrupted by conflicts of interest. Next week, the history of redistricting in Colorado. In Colorado, every round of map drawing has been a partisan blood feud. And an effort to rewrite the rules. Amendments Y and Z gives the power to an independent commission. No lobbyists, no politicians, gerrymandering, banned. That's a big claim. We'll look at whether Colorado voters could really end gerrymandering this November. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a CPR member and join today at CPR.org. This episode was brought to life by Nathaniel Miner, Allison Sherry, and yours truly. Audio magic by John Pino, incisive suggestions from Kevin Dale and Brad Turner, who also composed the theme music you're hearing right now. Additional music from Poddington Bear and the news clips you heard came from KRDO. And like every piece of purplish, this one was edited by Megan Verlee. See you next week.